Good morning, everybody, and welcome to From the Deep End for this June oh, 16th, I guess it is. Good to be with you here this morning, of course. Uh, my name is Jonathan Jenkins. I host this program every uh, Monday through Thursday from um, uh, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Time, and uh, it is Thursday. So that means I have my uh, guest with me this morning, uh, my regular guest on Thursdays. Uh, my dad, Dan Jenkins, is here with us. So dad, how are you doing today, sir? I am doing great. I uh, just finished up a gospel meeting and marriage workshop. Uh, not, not that far from Henderson, Tennessee, a little country church out there called Austin Chapel. Mm. I just, it was my fourth time to be in a meeting out there. By the way, it was the 150th anniversary of that church. Now that goes way, way back. Yeah, and it it's rather interesting. Uh, uh, Were you there Austin, for the groundbreaking? The Austin family moved into that area. There's a stream of water that was there and okay. they practically homesteaded it. I don't mean they got 160 acres, that type of, but that's just where they settled. Mm -hmm. And somebody came in with a restoration idea and uh, the stream down there is where all the women did their washing. And it was a lot of evangelism that went on while those women were there and they were talking about religion and everything. And now 150 years later, I mentioned uh, uh, in that, in that sermon Sunday morning, just as a part of it, more than seven and a half thousand times the Lord's Supper has been eaten at Austin Chapel. Hmm. Isn't that an amazing talking about continuity of record? I'm sure they've got some snow days in there in that in that <laughs> period of time. But uh, I just you just stop and think about it. The New Testament church that was established by some folks who came in understanding we can go back and just be Christians and restore that New Testament church. They bought into it. And this very day, you know, the, uh, uh, that congregation is still there. And it was a, just the history of it is sort of fascinating, but it does show what the New Testament church is. I mean, they, they came in their various denominational backgrounds. They had come across the mountains, across the Appalachians and everything and come, mm -hmm. come down into that beautiful area. And they were trying to find God, and did they ever find Him? And uh, and they still got Him there. Did you any idea who uh, who it was that that uh, you know first taught the restoration principles there in, in that area? Any, any ideas? I didn't hear for the first part of the question. Who who was it that that uh, brought that, restoration? I don't know. Just some of the some of the folks, just, okay. just some of the Austin folks. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And I'm not sure where it all came from. I mean, you go back, what, 150 years ago would be what, uh, 1860s and 70s. Mm -hmm. There could have been all kind of individuals traveling through there, and of course, being that close to Fred Hardeman, every three miles, there are churches of Christ. Evidently, back in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, all those students, uh, preachers at Fred Hardeman, just went out and started churches all over that area, mm. and uh, they're just places just every every two and a half miles. And it's not heavily populated, but there's this congregation after congregation. It's a it's a fascinating part of church history. Somebody ought to write about that because <laughs> every one of those congregations has a history, right? And uh, of course, everybody knows the history has died, and so mm -hmm. that's that's the part of it trying to restore it, and that's the part of it there. But I just thought it was interesting that we are celebrating today 150 years of this church existing here wow and that's seven thousand times they've come together on the first day of the week and worship god and praise god and
be interesting to know the kind of sermons they've had in the, <laughs> in those uh, seven thousand times it was simple and everything. And uh, but it was just it was just great. But it's great to have the audience here today too. I say they're they're all checking in and everything, and that part of it just adds a lot to this because that's what this is all about. It's just trying to get folks who want to study the Bible. Let's get together, open up the Bible, and see what God says about all of this. Yeah, and that's what we do here at the, for, for the first hour of uh, From the Deep End. Uh, we take your Bible questions uh, or any other kind of Bible-related thoughts that you may have. Uh, just go ahead and put those into the uh, comment section. We'll be glad to uh, address those. Um, any particular topic or any kind of topic along those lines is fair game. Uh, but we always uh, do reserve the right to say, well, we don't know. Um uh, but at least we do, even in a situation like that, we do at least try to give you some uh, guidance of, of what the Bible might say about the topic, even if it's not particularly addressed or it's outside of our uh, base of knowledge. We'll uh, at least try to get you started some way. So uh, uh, that's what we do in the first hour here. So um, we are looking forward to being able to uh, help you with that uh, in the in the moments that follow. In the second hour of the program, we are uh, in the study of a, the book of First Peter. Uh, and we will continue to do that uh, this morning in the second hour of the program. Um, and uh, we'll do that together at that appropriate time. So um, I don't see any direct questions to us yet, Dad, but um, uh, let me uh, just turn back to uh, something we were talking about yesterday. Had a fairly lively discussion going on in the in the comment section. I didn't get through all of the different uh, uh, comments that they were making yesterday. But I'd like just to get a few minutes of, of your thought, uh, and that's where we're going, Christine. Your, your comment just came in. Um, we were talking for some time, uh, for about half the hour uh, yesterday, about the concept of uh, children's church, some people call it. Um, I kind of took the position that it, it's hard to, hard to discuss it unilaterally uh, because we create this term, children's church, that has no, no biblical basis. And and then when you, you start talking about the, the concept, and the problem is it's not standardized. The practice isn't standardized. Uh, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different folks. Uh, and it's, you know, some some do it on Sunday morning, some do it on Sunday night, some do it both, some some have a more, uh, you know, play attitude about it. Some actually try to do worship training and, and so on. So, um my, my basic thought was you're going to have to, you're going to have to um, probably look at that on a case by case basis to figure out one is it doctrinally sound and two is it is it sound in terms of uh, in terms of judgment in terms of what the, the you know does it fit the setting that you're uh, that you're in and what you're trying to accomplish so I kind of I kind of took the middle position where I didn't have to give them a position so <laughs> I said I told them yesterday you, you might have more insight on it than I do uh, and so we, we are going to try and hear your, your insight on that now do you have any particular feelings about it um, one way or another well if children go grow to church everybody grows up in a children's church I've got to understand that and and mm -hmm. so uh, I grew up in the congregation had children's church you know what I mean I'm not mm -hmm. talking about some modern terminology I just mean you have children in church. It's rather interesting, Jonathan, where some of this came from was the busing program. It hmm. changed the nature of Sunday morning worship. Back in the, would it have been the, the, the late, I don't know, it had been probably the early 60s, maybe even, even later than that, uh, churches started buying buses and started mm -hmm. uh, 
going out and setting up bus routes and knocking on doors and church. Some congregations have eight or 10 buses and everything. And they'd go out, drive up down all the streets and because they'd been going up and down those streets and knocking on doors. And mm -hmm. now all of a sudden you've got a congregation that's got a hundred members, but all you bring in 150 children. And many of them have never, ever been to church in their life. Now you've developed the situation. What are you going to do about it? Right. And man, oh man, did it create some real problems inside the church. And so um, ultimately what came of that was, and in some respects, depending on the magnitude and the vast number of children that were brought in, because there's no way you can bring in 150 children into almost any assembly of the church and have any sort of semblance of behavior. Right. And so they created a, a separate worship period and that separate worship period then gave birth to the fact, well, they're, they're bored. We can't go over there and just have a Sunday morning service. Let's bring in the puppets and let's bring in the drama and let's bring on mm -hmm. all of these other things. And I believe that is as much as anything that gave rise to children's church. Now then, you know, jump forward another 50 years or so, uh, you know, to more recent times. And you've got parents that uh, their children are in daycare every day of the week. They have no mm -hmm. concept how to control their children. And this time it's not 150 children. It may be 25 or 30 mm -hmm. smaller children. And they are disruptive of the service of the church. And churches are trying to find ways to address it. Uh, and so, uh, um, you know, you, you, have got to talk about definition. And when you say there's no standardized thing, was it wrong for the church to do the busing program? Was it wrong for them to have a, um, a vacation Bible school every Sunday morning for all those children that came in? No, mm -hmm. it's a matter of judgment and relationship to it, but it gave birth to some situations that, uh, that it was, uh, uh, it was, it was amazing to watch. Uh, I had a brother-in-law up outside of Chicago and they had so many discipline problems. They almost had a principal's office that if a child misbehaved so much, they'd have to go down to a special <laughs> room and it was a timeout room. And sometimes it was almost a, a solitary confinement. That's the way they were, they were trying, they were trying, <coughs> they were dealing with the inner city kids, not all the way into inner city Chicago. That's the kind of problem they had. And so you got, you got to figure out how are you going to handle discipline? And, um, and back then, I guess you could have been a bit more tough while the children are riding the bus and mm -hmm. tell them to shut up, sit down and behave themselves, <laughs> but you can't get away with that in no. this day and age. And so every bit of that has changed. And so we have modified some things. Uh, Jonathan, I'm still of a firm conviction that uh, there's enough biblical evidence that children need to grow up seeing mom and daddy worship. I believe mm -hmm. that's the, that's the ideal way uh, for it to happen. There's evidence of it in the old Testament. I don't know if you got in loads of <coughs> verses in Ezra yesterday or where, whenever they stood up, they read the scriptures all day long. Mm -hmm. How many times the children are involved in that? And so you've got to, you've got to have understanding. Is it in Nehemiah and as many as, as had understanding were there. I, I think that, I think that's Nehemiah maybe wrong about the, the location, but all of those that had understanding, they, they assembled. 
And then you begin talking about it on a practical level. The, the funniest one is in early in the book of Exodus, where the, uh, uh, that firstborn animal belonged to God. Mm-hmm. And when that firstborn animal belonged to God, you could buy that animal from God and come to your own private uh, uh, donkey. It could be your, your beast of burden, but you had to mm-hmm. buy it from God if it was a firstborn. He owned all the firstborn children. He owned all of the firstborn animals. There's an amazing verse there that says that, uh, but if you choose not to uh, 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 to purchase that, I think it's a donkey, it, it, that the animal under discussion, uh, you shall take, put, you know, well, not this detail, put your foot on the neck of that little donkey and kill him. And when your dad, when your child says, what is the meaning of all of this? <laughs> That's a biblical example. And so when children say, what is the meaning of the Lord's Supper? You've got them in another room. They grow up not having ever seen worship. Worship has been more entertainment for them. You are creating a situation in the church that when they hit that junior high level and you're trying to trying to bring them into, uh, into that assembly and you're doing all of those things uh, uh, and, and it's not entertaining anymore. And I think we do exactly the same thing in working with our teens in the church. We hire a youth guy. We mm-hmm. totally separate the teens from the church. They're rarely, rarely ever in an adult Bible class in that situation. And so mm-hmm. all of a sudden they're 20 years of age and, uh, they've been in, uh, in, in, uh, youth church with a youth guy that teaches them every Sunday by Sunday morning, Wednesday night, Bible class throughout the week and everything. And now all of a sudden they're 20 years of age and there's nothing in the church because we've made no provision for bringing them into the kingdom of God. And uh, <laughs> I think church I mean, congregations can do generally what they want to, but they're going to reap the consequences of it. And are we ever reaping the consequences of it? Yeah. I don't know if there's any way to, uh, to, to, to prove this, but that was kind of one of the points I made yesterday is that, you know, back in the mid-century, um, um, you know, the mid, mid-20th century, Church of Christ, very rural, uh, not a lot of mobility in terms of people moving in and off the land. You'd have multiple generations of a family. And so one generation to the next would know how, to, how, how children were supposed to behave and had examples of parents controlling children in the assembly. Whereas today, that's not the case is that it's often that we don't have that. And I think you just made a good point there. A lot of these kids coming out of these programs because they've never had to, uh, they've never had to behave in a, in an adult service. They've never seen their parents control children in that service. And then they go out and maybe they have children and they're in that same, same kind of setting where their standards of what behavior in worship are not going to be the same. Um, you know, as the generation that came before them, and you just kind of you have a self-fulfilling uh, problem there. So, uh, but anyway, to, to the to the practice itself, and you know, I think we're probably both in the same spot. I would much prefer to see children with their parents um, in in the assembly, and I think a lot of this could have can, can be solved not by training the children, but making sure the parents are well equipped to um, uh, to know how to maintain their children and so on. But um, Anyway, um, thank you for your comments on that. We spent a good time on that yesterday, so let's try to move on to some of the other uh, 
comments that we have here in the uh, in the uh, question area. Um, Jim is Let's asking. Let's go ahead and answer Jim's question about the book of Revelation. No, the publication date has not yet been established for the for that book. <laughs> okay, there you go. Uh, and, and and Jim, the the publication date for God's Prophetic Spirit Volume Two will be. Six months after my dad finishes Revelation. How about that? <laughs> All right. He made that commitment, guys. It is closer than it's ever been. My, my commentary on Revelation, it's it's closer than it's ever been. Okay. That, well, we're, we're, we are waiting with David. that big enough? That. There you go. Uh, uh, let's see what we got here. We got one from uh, Travis. says, Dan, what is your perspective on Colossians one twenty one? And Ephesians six and verse four. Um, Colossians six four, obviously an oak. Colossians one twenty one. I'm not sure about it. Is that uh, could that be three twenty one by any chance? Or I, mean, I may be wrong about um, the reference there. Um, Give me a second here. Okay, there we go. Uh, one twenty one is and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds that does not that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's a that's an interesting verse if that's the one you meant travis 321 there you go um that that might might be might be better uh fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged and then obviously ephesians yes. 6, 4 um do not provoke your children to wrath Bring them up the nurture admonition of the Lord. So there we go. Well, uh, obviously, these letters were written to first century Christians. And uh, they recognized uh, the grave responsibility they had toward their children. And they were looking for ways to uh, <laughs> try to figure out what God wanted them to do. And so you've got the marriage problems. And think of how in when you get to this section of Colossians. And, and then... You get over to this section in um, Ephesians. It's just one topic after another, after another a verse here, two verses there and everything. And so uh, uh, the Bible lays forth principles. And so uh, in, uh, uh, in, in, in the one in Colossians, it says, fathers, do not provoke your children. I believe one later translation says uh, to wrath, lest they be discouraged. Uh, and yet that's the counterpart and the, the guardrail that comes beside Ephesians chapter six and verse four that places upon fathers, the responsibility to bring up their children. And there are, there are two words that are used. One is the nurture of the Lord. Mm -hmm. uh, Johnson will make a terrible mistake in raising our children and, I wish I could go back and do it over again with all four of my children. I did my best, did the very, very, very best that I could. But uh, uh, raising children is not teaching them the rules. We don't do that in this family. Now, when a child's three and four and five years of age, we do not lie in this family. And if you lie, there's some mm -hmm. really severe consequences from it. Now, I figured that out from the Ten Commandments. I mean, you've got murder over there and you've got all of this stuff over there. And right in the middle of the Ten Commandments was do not bear false witness. And that's one of the big ten. What does that mean? Well, you step aside from it philosophically and come back. If you lie to somebody, you don't really trust them. 
and uh, and or, or you or they cannot trust you once you begin lying to them. Mm-hmm. And so uh, speaking the truth, but it's far more than just t- teaching them about speaking the truth. It is to tie them to the cross of Jesus. And, and, and as soon as you can, you need to be saying to your children, let's open up the Bible and see what God says about this. Um, Jonathan, when uh, we went with your family to, uh, to look at the ark mm-hmm. and uh, I pulled up on my screen that, uh, the deaf Bible written on about a third or fourth grade level. Mm-hmm. And that's right before we went to see the ark and uh, your grandson, my great grandson sat there and read the Bible. And I don't know if he's second grade or something like that, but he knew enough words that he mm-hmm. read the Bible and perhaps maybe for the first time in his life, I can read this and I can understand it. Mm-hmm. And so Deuteronomy six talks about talking about it when you're in your home and when you're not in your home, and when you're lying down and when, when you're getting up, it's, it's a part of life. And so it's bring them up in the teachings of the Lord. Now then you, you look at this verse in Ephesians fathers, it says, uh, and we give this to, to moms and moms do this. It's not mom's primary responsibility. She'll be the one who does it, but he is responsible for making sure his children are nurtured in the Lord. And that's just a part of this. As you go through this, he says, uh, you know, it's the first commandment with promise. You go back to the, to the previous verse that shows the importance of it because there it was in the old Testament, honor your father and your mother. And that principle taught in the old Testament, the principle is brought over. And so a child ought to, uh, ought to uh, see, I remember, I remember once uh, Jonathan, I don't remember. I, I suspect it was Gary. He was the one that <laughs> reacted verbally more than, more than all of my children. We were sitting together on a Sunday morning and I showed him the check that I was about to put in. Why? Mm-hmm. I wanted him to know how important the church was to his mother and his daddy. And instead of him just sitting there quiet, quietly, like, you know, <laughs> you or David would have done, he just shouted out, wow. <laughs> and he's looking down at the check. What a great lesson mm-hmm. for a child to learn sitting with his father. He probably mm-hmm. learned you know, a greater lesson there than any, any Bible study we, we had together, but it is, uh, and, and so, well, it says, bring them up in the, uh, in the nurture of general way of parents in the Lord for this is right. Well, in that situation, where would their parents be other than in the Lord? Right. And so you bring, you, you know, you, you, uh, bring up your children, uh, in the Lord and then provoke them not to wrath. And that's another topic. That is, you let them be children. If you are a military dad, and almost everybody in our audience have seen military dads, mm-hmm. you are headed down a road that your children are likely going to rebel. And that's uh, the, the, because they know the rules. They know the drill sergeant. They know how many push-ups, spiritual push-ups they've got to, they've got to do. And church becomes something they are repulsed by. Mm-hmm. And so the nurturing and the teaching of the Lord has to do with really helping them. Uh, uh, Jonathan, <clears throat> we, we mess it up all the time. 
during a baptism. That ought to be the happiest time when that family is sitting there worshiping together. It ought to be as happy as the birth of a new baby in the family at home. Mm. And what do we do? Oh, no, we're going to be five minutes later, you know, waiting while we have this baptism. That ought to be the greatest thing in the topic in the car on the way home. And the same thing about other aspects of worship. And did you see this? Didn't you really enjoy that song and that type of thing? And so that's, that's just that's just the overall picture of it. But uh, first of all, biblically, fathers, you bring your children up in the nurtures of the Lord. Mothers are better at uh, giving the, the detailed stories and everything, but uh, it's fathers that have that responsibility. Jonathan, I may have said this on this program, but it's, I think it's sort of classic about my mom and my dad, you know, and your, your grandparents that you never knew. But when my brother Jerry wrote his, uh, his master's thesis on uh, John's use of the word faith, the Greek word is pistuo, John's use of the word pistuo, and he went through every one of the seven books that John wrote, looked at every usage of, of that word faith in every place in there. Dedication page. I dedicate this thesis to my mother in whose lap I first heard the word faith and to my father in whose life I saw it every day. Hmm. I think that's it. That's the key to rearing children. And that is, that is you got to be genuine. You've yeah. got to be genuine in your faith. And if you're not that, forget it. Yeah. We spent some time yesterday, uh, I guess it was yesterday, talking about, um, there's a question about uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, that she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith. Um, and uh, honor and, and with self-control, however, I'm, I'm missing one. There's another qualifier there, but uh, just spend some time talking about the importance of of, of the ladies in terms of um, uh, training the next generation. Because just what Uncle Jerry said right there is, I, I heard the word faith sitting in your lap, and that and that's the way it happens. Uh, it's that the, the child sits on the mother's lap and hears all the Bible songs and, and he usually hears some of the Bible stories from the first. And, and that's, that's, that's the natural and that's the way that it happens. But the father has to be there and has to be involved in the process. Um, and ultimately, um, the, the, charge of the, the charge here is given to, um, uh, to fathers. And when you don't, you have to fulfill that role on some level to, um, um, uh, to discharge your responsibility to God, your responsibility to the children. But I do think it is interesting that uh, between uh, the combination of all of those passages, it does show the importance of having both the husband and the wife together, fulfilling their roles uh, to, to keep the children, uh, you know, uh, well, to keep them safe, to train them and to bring them up in God's instruction. And somewhere along the line, I, I made the point yesterday that, if we could just do that, if all of our if all of our homes inside the churches would just do that, uh, we wouldn't have church growth problems. We would we, we would um, uh, continue to put the next generation out, the next generation out, the next generation out, and our churches would be vibrant and stable. If we if even before doing anything evangelistic, if we could just take care of our own, uh, and the pattern to do it is right there. It's right there in Scripture. If we'll just um, Yes. Uh, follow it. Well, John, I'm hesitant to, to mention this. And after I finish this story, 
don't think, well, it isn't Dan great, but isn't Christianity great? I taught a class <clears throat> at Palm Beach Lakes many years ago, 25, 30 years ago, in which we had a lot of young adults. And so I said, how many of you in this class actually grew up in the church? And, uh, you know, you had a Christian mom and a Christian daddy. And lo and behold, half of the class had not grown up in the church, hmm. which means they have no concept at all about how to make children behave and worship and how you nurture them. Mm -hmm. And so then I said, uh, to, I said, I want those of you who grew up in the church <clears throat> to talk to the rest of the people in this room. I'm just going to back out of this. I want you to uh, think about your teen years and you were in the homes of, of individuals in the church, just as you grew up in the church and half of those have fallen away. What happened in those homes? What was different in your home from what you what was in their home? Hmm. And I think the greatest compliment I've ever ever received was from from my son Gary. Now this is forget Dan. After I say this, hmm. he said, "Can I tell you why I'm here?" So that man standing up there teaching this class is the same man at home he is in this building. And if children cannot look at mamas and dads and they see a Sunday, a Sunday mama, a Sunday spiritual mom and a Sunday and a spiritual dad, it will not work. You just, you absolutely cannot. And so that's so important. And seriously, forget about Dan, but don't forget that principle. I'm here. And the reason what was different in my home is that man standing up there that teaching that class is the same at home as he is here in the pulpit. And when he said it, I thought, Oh, I wish that were true. <laughs> you know, I, I, mm -hmm. I, I'm glad he misread me. It read me. And I, I'm, I'm glad he has that appreciation of what I was trying to be, but that's not about Dan and forget to leave Dan out of that and put the principle in the lives. Now that, but my husband's not a Christian. It's impossible for me to do this. You want to talk to Eunice and Lois about that? Right. You know, there's a many an individual that uh, has been raised by a godly mother and an absent spiritual father. And, uh, and there are many great workers in the church today. And I'm sure in the audience right now, there are individuals who could look back in their lives and said, you know, the real influence in, in my life was my dad or the real influence in my life was my mom. And I'm a, I'm, I'm trying to be a faithful Christian right now because, because that's what I saw in them every day of their lives. And, mm -hmm. and I believe that's the key. It, it, it's knowing the will of God, but it, you cannot, <clears throat> you cannot share your faith. I know when we sing the song, I'm happy today, you know, we get to that verse, I'm sharing my faith. You cannot share your faith. Faith is a personal thing. You can share the faith, but you cannot share your faith because that is, that is something that is a part of your soul. And so how do you train children? You turn them over to God. The thing I talked about, Nathan being able to read the Bible uh, as, as he grows up, 
why would you not when he comes and says, do I have to do everything you say? Why would you not to say, let's go check and see what God says. Mm-hmm. And thank God for that. It's called easy to read version downloadable. It's a free download it's called the deaf Bible. It's called the easy to read version. It's a free download. And all I did while we were up there at the ark, I just pulled it up on my screen and said, Nathan, come here and read the Bible to me. Hmm. And, uh, and that just made me think, what a, I wish I'd had an easy to read the Bible, easy to read Bible when my children were growing up and I could just have done that so easily. You know, let's talk about what God wants you to do. Not, not what's mom and daddy's rules, not what's the rules in this family, but this is God's family. What's God wants to do in this family. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, some wonderful thoughts there. Let's uh, move on to the next question we have on the board here. Um, Directed to you, Dad. Uh, Travis says, uh, Dan, what is the meaning behind eating the scroll in Revelation 10, verses 9 through 11? Um, and that was specifically addressed to you. So, I, Well, it's, I, it, it's 837. Can I have two minutes? <laughs> uh, well, you can have up to, you can have up to 23 minutes. How about that? mentioned in the Bible here in the, uh, in the book of Revelation. It's just not first mentioned in, in the Bible, in the, in the book of Revelation. Where's the mm-hmm. first mention? Well, as far as I know, other than some of the poetical words David has about your word being sweeter than honey in the honeycomb, when God is ready to call Elijah to be his prophet and to make him uh, uh, the messenger to the people, he shows him in a scroll. And on the scroll, front and back, are the words of God. And he says to Ezekiel, he says, eat this book. And then in that same paragraph, and that's all in chapters 2 and 3, and that's the mm-hmm. background of it in the book of Revelation. In the, in, in, in the Old Testament background, the Lord then says, now, Ezekiel, I'm going to stick your tongue to the roof of your mouth. You're you're going to be tongue tied unless you begin a sentence by saying, thus says the Lord. And when, when you begin a sentence saying, thus says the Lord, I will loosen your tongue and you can speak the word. Hmm. Where did you get that word? You had just made it a part of you a part figuratively made it a part of your heart and your soul. And so he says, now Ezekiel, you're my messengers. You go out and be my messenger. In the book of Revelation, you've got a similar thing. And that is where uh, the, the, the Lord says in, to, uh, to John, go take the scroll. I'm glad you put it on the screen. That's open to the hand of the angel. I, he gave me the little scroll, take and eat it. I took it. It was sweet in my money. And he said, and I was told, you must prophesy about many nations and and people and nations and languages. Yes, you must again prophesy about many people, nations, languages, and things. John, you spent your life doing it. Your life is not over. Hmm. Feed on the word of God. Because Patmos is not the end. And when you get to the next chapter, you've got the uh, uh, the two witnesses in the city. 
that are prophesying and speaking the word of God. And then you've got the uh, promise that God made to John. John, you're going to go out and you'd better feast on the word. And figuratively, you need to, to keep your tongue tied to the roof of your mouth, especially in preaching. If it does not begin with, this is what God says. And if God would do that today and would stop the tongue of every individual who does not in his sermon say, thus says the Lord, that'd be a whole lot of three to five minute sermons <laughs> preached in America next year. Believe that with all of my heart. It's not philosophy. It is not what some individual says about a situation. That is not what it was all about. I recently heard, uh, heard of a church that uh, it was Memorial Sunday and uh, they had a special service. It was, and uh, uh, they wanted to emphasize those who had given their lives for each other. And here, uh, the, at least I was told this was the content of the sermon. They flashed up on the screen six different movies. And one of those movies is where Dr. Spock gave his life for Captain Kirk. I don't know what the other five movies were, you know, but the whole sermon, hear me, the whole sermon with these secular men in a fictitious world, it's fables. And we talk about these great moving stories. And you remember this movie, don't you? And you remember that. These great stories, no, let me tell you a great story that moves you. It's called, it's called Golgotha. And that's what preaching the cross is all about. And I don't care how emotionally teary-eyed you get because Spock was willing to die for Kirk. That is not faith. And, uh, and we've, we've, got to, we've got to get that. And so... What's Revelation all about? I think the, the, the last verse about the scroll in Revelation, it's the word again. And as you read the Bible, look at every single word. You must again do it. You know, and that, that has somewhat to do with the date of the book of the Re book of Revelation, because if he's nearly 100 years of age and <laughs> when he gets to Patmos, when he lands over there on Ephesus, he drops dead. You understand? And that's not him much preaching again. But if the if the date of the book is earlier, that's what he did the rest of his life. And and you know, as far as you know, he's the one that died the 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 one apostle that died the natural death. And so he had a longer preaching span than any of the other apostles. And the Lord says to uh, John figuratively. John, you eat this book because, again, you're going to go out and be prophesying. And I think that, again, has to do with what happened to Ezekiel. Chew the book, open your mouth, and says, this is what God says. Okay. Just for the record, uh, Kirk or Spock didn't give his life for Kirk. The question he asked is, is the ship safe? The ship, is it safe? So it actually, he gave, his, he gave himself for the entire saving the Enterprise. <laughs> Sorry, it's, not, it's only my favorite science. There. It's only my science well, favorite science fiction movie. It, it's it's the thing. It's it might be the best science fiction movie ever made. It, it, it's really good. So, but it, I get your point. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, 
I, I have it up there really close to Empire Strikes Back. Uh, those two, those two. It's it's, t- it's going to be tough to get a better sci- sci-fi movie than Empire Strikes Back or The Wrath of Khan. Now, that's just that, anyway. That's that that's allowed to be talked about any day you want to talk about that. But uh, <laughs> but certainly your point's true there. Uh, we we do a lot better if we. Um, um, By the way, I did the, that in seven minutes. Let the record show that, okay? <laughs> Don't let the record show that. Um, hey, Dad, have you heard? Uh, just off topic here, have you heard anything going on over at the um, uh, with the Southern Baptist Convention? Have you been paying attention to any of that? Well, I saw I saw your post about it and everything, and I thought your evaluation of the introductory post is absolutely astounding. And mm-hmm. uh, the same thing is happening. Uh, in, 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 in the world, you've got the intellectuals and by, but you know, and they're going to try to reformat the church. It's happening politically, but my, oh my, is it happening spiritually and in the, in, in Christendom. And by that, I mean, just, uh, define that word as, as liberal as you can. So that anybody who can, can spell the word Christ is a Christian, you know, mm-hmm. if they're, if they, if they put all those letters together in the right way and, and if you're dyslexic, we'll will you still give you a passing grade? Well, and, uh, d- d- and do you and know so whatever, whatever you got over there? And and we're going to change. Southern Baptists have been known for really sticking firmly with the book, and it's not that way anymore. Mm-mm. They fought this battle 35 years ago in their schools. You know, when I was in Birmingham preaching, for, I guess it was 40 years ago. Had a very dear friend of the Baptist Church. He was a Baptist deacon, and uh, he and I were very open and talking about what was happening in the Baptist Church. And he was worried sick that they mm-hmm. had lost all of their schools of preachings and uh, and uh, some of the things that impact the Lord's Church today, or our or our Christian colleges. And so, whenever they were losing it forty years ago, they fought the battle. And they won it, but another generation has arisen which knew not Joseph, to use Bible terminology, and they're fighting the same battle, and this is only the beginning of it. I yeah, think it, Southern it, Baptist, what, 15, 20 million members of it, the Southern Baptist? Something like that, yeah. Uh, we will see Baptist groups. And by the way, you may or may not have noticed that many of the community churches used to be Baptist churches. They've mm-hmm. taken the word Baptist off of their building that becomes such such Bible church or Bible fellowship. They are still doctrinally as Calvinistic as they were, but they did not want that association with the Baptists. And so just in an external way, they're, 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 they're taking their name and off their building, take the word Baptist off of their building. And, uh, and uh, this is not to say, well, isn't that great? They're having problems. No, it's tragic. Mm-hmm. It's tragic that that influence that's been a part of our society that, that points people back to the Bible and back to the cross and produces so many good uh, 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 booklets that you can use. Uh, it's tragic that uh, the winds of change are blowing and uh, I'm not sure where it's going to end up with them. Well, there may, be, know, there may what, be six or eight or ten groups that come out of it. One of the big issues they're having is over um, uh, women serving as uh, pastors. Uh, and what I, as, as I've been, been trying to read up on some of it, well, one of the uh, 
big problems originated from the Saddleback Church, where our good old uh, uh, former colleague, I guess you could say, Rick Warren, is now the the lead lead pastor. Uh, and he uh, and the Saddleback Church, I think it's Saddleback, isn't it, I believe? He um, uh, they they started ordaining you know uh, women pastors and. Uh, the the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention didn't do anything about it. Now, they're having some other issues, too, over some of the sexual abuse scandals. Uh, there's actually some discussion about Calvinism and Armenianism um, and a few other things going on as well. But one of the, the hot topics is is just that, the, the ordination of women as pastors. Uh, I find it interesting, also, some of the, the Baptists I've been following, you know, posting on Twitter and other social media places, just uh, very clearly stating, you know, the Bible's clear, women can't be pastors, they'll quote, they'll quote 1 Timothy chapter 3 and so on. But I thought, as I realized it was kind of Rick Warren who was behind it all, I'm like, well, wait a minute. You know, 35 years ago, he tried this somewhere else. And because, I, there, because there was no organization, I mean, he had influence, sure, but he ended up leaving. Now he's in a different group. And that group has a bureaucracy, that group has a headquarters, that group has a president that gets elected over the convention that controls a lot of the revenue and a lot of the, and the doctrine and, and all, all the organization of a 15 million member denomination. And lo and behold, one man with that kind of influence and that one big influential church is putting that convention into a, into a turmoil because the leadership doesn't have the doesn't have the the capability of standing up to such an influ uh, influential member of uh, of um, uh, of the community, uh, and just the um, just the difference between the way Churches of Christ are able to handle something like this, and the way the Southern Baptists are having to deal with it, just really sat on me quickly about how uh, how um, um, important autonomy is and so on. It's just a uh, it's a very, very clear um, validation in my mind about the about the plan of God and the organization of uh, organization of the church. Well, you know, I think you the way you wrote that up and everything isn't it amazing how the Lord established the church? Are the churches of Christ, local congregations, struggling with this very issue? Absolutely. But my answer to Southern Baptists and to those churches. What verse in the Bible has changed? I mean, here, here's the Bible that for that in, that in America, and I'm talking about Christendom, I'm talking about almost across the board in Christendom, everybody understood it is a shame for women to speak in the church, and this is the commandment of God. You put 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 14 verse 34, 35. It's a shame for women of the church, you know, to speak in the church and tie that to verse 37. If a man among you is spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write, what have you just written, Paul? It's a shame for women to speak in the church. The things that I write to you are the commandments of Jesus. And any local congregation in religious body has turned their back on the teachings of Jesus in relationship to this. And the battle is not over. It's going to impact churches of Christ as we have less and less Bible preaching in the pulpit and less and less of that preaching that says, thus says the Lord. And the winds of change are there. And uh, uh, 
Uh, it is not necessarily that we found a better way. We just found a different way of doing it. And uh, that's not one verse of the Bible that's changed at all. Why? It's eternal by the very nature of it. And, and those verses are still there. I do not permit a woman to teach over the man. That's, that's an apostle of Jesus Christ says, I do not permit a woman to teach over a man, but community churches do it. And now the Southern Baptists are struggling over it. And they're not the only ones. I want you to think about in the advertising of community churches. It's not the man is the pastor. It's the man and his wife mm -hmm. are the pastors. And that subtle thing has come about in the last, you know, probably 10 years where he's the pastor down there. They are the pastor down there right now. And mm -hmm. she sometimes is as active in the assembly as, as the, as the, as, as the pastor is. And guys, nothing has changed in the Bible. Right. I remember a religious debate uh, where the uh, uh, preacher got up and he was going to affirm the truth. He read Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he sat down. And the denominational hmm. preacher got up and went for 45 minutes. That's how long it was. It was the, the debate was going to last. I mean, his speech was supposed to last. Right, right. Second time, the gospel preacher went up. We went over to the man's table and said, could I borrow your Bible just a minute? <laughs> and he picked up that guy. He handed him his Bible. He read Acts 2.38, and he says, it's still there. Nothing's <laughs> changed. Nothing's and, changed. When you've talked, and when the Southern Baptists are through debating all of this over and over again, it's still there. It's still there. not going to change. And, uh, and, and, uh, but it, it is, it, it shows, uh, how easy Satan can gravely impact Christendom by taking mm -hmm. over the leadership. Mm -hmm. and thank God that the Lord made churches of Christ autonomous. Mm -hmm. Here's that little church at Austin chapel, 150 years old. You think that things, that church is going to change. <laughs> knowing the heart of the people people I was just with, you know, in the earlier part of this week, it's not going to change. They're going to be there. And if they teach their children, which is sort of where we started about, about the importance of, of obeying the Lord 150 years from now, that church will still be there. Mm -hmm. Why? It's based on the word of God and the word of God is not going to change. And so, what those women did down there at that, that uh, stream, washing the clothes and talking about the Bible and trying to figure out what truth was. The truth that they discovered there is the same truth that, that we have in, the, in, in our Bibles, and we can be that same church. Mm -hmm. The question just came up from Connie over there, if you see it. She says, do you think our elders are falling down on the job uh, when it comes to letting unscriptural things uh, be implemented into our, um, in our congregations. And, um, again, that answers yes and no. I think, I, I, I think the, some of the reports about the downfall of soundness in the Lord's church are sometimes over, well, exaggerated. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I think there are, there are a whole lot of elderships out there 
like at places like Austin Chapel, assuming they have elders, that they just you never you never hear about them. Uh, you're never going to hear about them. They're just going to go along doing their thing, and and the vast majority of our congregations are going them. to do that just fine. But there are places where it's not true. There are places where our, our elders are not doing a very good job on holding the line. Yeah, go ahead, Dad. That article you wrote about, and it was a longer article, but I would encourage mm -hmm. people to go back and read it again. I think you ought to uh, somebody uh, mention it again on this program in case anybody mentioned it about the church up at Rockledge and about how it's the same church that was there when when you first arrived there, and it's still got the same uh, uh, everything, and uh, and they're not changing or anything. And talk about some. Some some brother that was there that preached and everything he was an older individual and mm -hmm. and and there's not a whole lot of change going on and you contrast to that with what that with, with what is happening, but I think the funniest thing in that uh, uh, in that article and you may not have to sit it this way, but flash forward 25 years and come back to Rockledge and we will still be singing number 728B. I thought bingo, that's it. Yeah, it, yeah the, know, uh, the the I'm not against any new any new song if it changes the hearts of individuals. But just to have new songs, just because we want to sing new songs, uh, we need to sing better songs, or we need the songs we're singing. We, we need to sing the songs that we're singing better. Is maybe a better yeah. is a better way to say it. But I love that statement about okay, let's come back to Rockledge. Guess what? We're still singing number 728B, and I thought. That nailed it right there. It's very, very much so. Yeah, that's a uh, the, the the article's entitled "Deconstructing the Church" because that's uh, the the progressives love to use the word deconstruct. Anytime they don't like the anytime anytime they don't like something, they deconstruct it so that they can reconstruct it after their own image. That, that that's what that means. Um, and it's it's funny how the progressives these days are moving toward what they refer to as a discipling movement. Um, anytime you hear somebody talk about discipling. What they really mean, um, obviously, we are, we are to be disciples. That's a biblical, biblical concept. But when they get to discipling as as a as a church growth method, almost always what they mean is, if when we're discipling, we're out there being practical, we're out there being real, and we're not sitting around worried about doctrine, which is weird because the word disciple ultimately means student or learner. But what they mean is, we need to be out feeding the homeless. We need to be out doing whatever. And not sitting around worried about doctrine. Well, first of all, it's a false dichotomy. You can't do one without the other properly. But secondly, what they also trying to do is get away from large churches. They don't want to be in large church buildings. They think there ought to be home churches and small churches and so on. And uh, the point of my article was, well, wait a minute, guys. The guy, the, the, the progressives out there who are doing that to us are these 30-year-olds who went to whatever university they went to, they came out as a youth minister. And instead of going out to a little 35, 40-member country church, they went to a 400-member church and they served as the fourth guy on staff. And they found out, I can't, I'm, I can't be an activist when I've got, you know, I've got my, I've got Dan as the, as the lead preacher of the church and Dan's not going to put up with it. So in order to, and, and then I've got a whole bunch of elders that are, you know, 40 years older than I am, and they're not going to put up with it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to criticize the, the, the stodginess and the legalism of the, of the church in the, in, the, in the big building, and I'm going to pull away 10 or 15 members and start my little home church 
and we're just going to have a more meaningful, emotive type type worship in the home service, and it's going to be simple and all that kind of stuff without all the organization and all the bureaucracy and all the structure. And my point of the article was, guys, what you just described is the churches of Christ, because our average congregation is about 70, 75 members tops. We have thousands of churches. I mean, they're not they're not home churches, but they meet in little bitty tiny one and two room type buildings and sing simple songs and have simple services from untrained uh, preachers and, and, and so on and Bible class teachers. You just described what we always have been. Uh, and we, we're not the ones who moved. Y'all did. Y'all the, one, y'all, y'all, y'all the ones who followed the Saddleback growth models. Y'all, you're the ones who went down that path, not us. And now you're cr- criticizing us for what you did. We never moved. We never changed. And welcome back. Because what you're, what you're doing is you're recreating what we are from the beginning. So anyway, that, that, that was the point of the article. It's on the website. It's called Deconstructing the Church. And you should be able to find it over there if you're interested. But it is a long article. It's about 6,000 words long or so. So it's not a short read. Um, but we are at the top of the hour here, Dad, so I need to let you go. Um, just FYI, during the first hour of this program, we had the largest audience uh, collectively between Facebook and the different places on you, Facebook and YouTube we're going. Uh, we had the largest audience in the history of this program during the first hour the first hour today, so that is outstanding. Um, so anyway, we're going to take our break here and uh, come back in just a couple of moments and begin uh, our study of the book of First Peter together. And so sit tight. We'll be right back with you. After just a, or at least I will, I'll say goodbye to my dad here. Uh, let me do that. I'll say goodbye to you, Dad. Do you have anything else you want to say, real quick? Oh, I love it. I love the fact now that I've got access to these comments. I'm just enjoying this program even more. I just couldn't imagine how, I know how much I enjoyed it. And now that I see all of these comments, and man, that's it. You get to see all of those. Uh, but you don't have time to read them. And so mm-hmm. uh, whenever you're talking and everything, I get over and I start reading those comments. And man, that's a thank you, guys. Thank you for being what you are. You are the church. And you're not, you're not going to be impacted by all of those who want to restructure and remake the church. Why? You have no allegiance to their schools, to their papers. You have no allegiance to them. You're the only paper you're you're have allegiance to is the is the one that had that is inside a book that has the word Holy Bible on the outside. Thank you mm-hmm. for having that allegiance and for being a part of the body of Jesus. Yep. All right, Dad. Thank you. Thanks for being on. Have safe travels home, and Lord willing, we will see you back here uh, next Thursday. Uh, I missed. Okay. That's it.
we go. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the uh, second hour of From the Deep End. Always appreciate having my dad on with us and had a good first hour of the program here. Let me go ahead and turn that chat overlay off for now so I can get the text up here a little bit bigger in just a second. But we're going to turn our attention now to uh, a look at um, uh, First Peter. That is what we do in the second hour of the program uh, tonight. Do not forget that we have... Um, um, Robbie Eversoll, it's his Thursday to be on with us, um, and we are looking forward to him. He always does an outstanding job for us. Uh, I may not be here tonight, and I'm not sure Eric can either, so I'm going to have to do, do some work this afternoon. Uh, but I've got some things going on today that I think is going to keep me away from tonight, uh, and I'm not sure if Eric is going to be back from his meeting or not. I'll have to double-check with him. Um, if not, I may just have to see if Tony is available to, to host the program for us. Um, and get that done. Uh, so that is at seven o'clock with Robbie Ebersole. Uh, then do not forget, of course, that uh, uh, the Spanish language meeting continues after that in the eight o'clock hour. Uh, and then of course, again, at the nine o'clock hour, uh, have, have had a real good response to that. I, I am frankly a little bit surprised at how many people have tuned, tuned into that. And I am uh, just thankful of the um, uh, for the participation in it and the way that y'all have uh, shared that around and uh, thank you for it. Uh, I think Marlon is very pleased as well. I see Marlon is, uh, looks like he's over on our YouTube channel making some comments, but uh, appreciate the, the good work that he is putting into it. Um, oh, I forgot. To, today, normally we would have Daryl Broking on. He's been doing a series on the, the historical Jesus for some time now. I'm going to assume Daryl is not going to be on today. I, I haven't spoken to him uh, since, well, uh, we, we were in a message group together and he was sending some messages out earlier in the week. And I know he's got some appointments coming up. I think he had a schedule, a, a, a surgery schedule for Friday. I'm not sure if that is still going to happen or not, but I am working under the assumption Daryl is not going to be on. So uh, that will not come on at 10. Uh, but if you get a notification saying he is, that's great. Uh, make sure you come back in and, and tune in to be a part of it. So uh, keep that in mind. Uh, but um, yeah, we'll get you covered tonight. Robbie will be here doing the, doing the sermon and Somebody be here to, to host the program as we as we uh, uh, go out together. So anyway, let's turn our attention to First Peter. Uh, that is where we are. We are in First Peter chapter one, uh, about the middle section of the text, middle section of the of the chapter. Um, second here, get everything turned back the way that I want it. Um, uh, I still have not decided which one of these I like the best. Let's just, I guess, go with me down in the bottom corner again. That makes the text as big as possible. Uh, in First Peter chapter one, we are have been talking here about the um, uh, well. We spent a couple of days, really, right here in this middle section of the first uh, paragraph or so, uh, dealing with the, um, uh, the the testing of their genuine faith and of the uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ and how that would then relate to them uh, having received the uh, the outcome of their faith. Um, and spent a good deal of time yesterday talking about, I believe, the emphasis here of, on though you have not seen him, and though and he says in the second half of that verse, though you do not now see him. Uh, it's that word now that led me to, to, to say some things that, um, um, that they say some of the things I did yesterday, tying that to the, uh, uh, the, the false Christ that you would see uh, out in the desert or out in the wilderness or the false Christ that you would see uh, in the inner rooms and, and, I, and the point I was making is, I believe Peter is making a contrast here. Uh, you Jews, you elect, uh, are going to see uh, here very soon, you're going to see 
false Christ out there in the wilderness saying to you, you need to go to them. Um, and if you turn to them, you're not going to obtain what is the outcome of your faith, which ought to be, ought to be the salvation of your souls. If you go out to those people, you're going to lose your faith. You're going to lose your life because the Roman armies will eventually kill you. And you're also going to lose the salvation of your soul. So you need to, though you do not see him, you need to continue to love him. You do love him. And though you do not now see him, you should believe in him. You continue to believe in him and hold on to that joy that is coming with the glory that is to be revealed. We'll get to that in 1 Peter chapter 4 and then 1 Peter chapter 5, the beginning of that, you know, a few weeks from now when we get over there. But that, I believe, is the um, is the outcome of the uh, the outcome of the soul and, and so on. So I think that's tied in largely to the historical setting of what's be, what's happening to the Christians in the first century. There, particularly these being Jewish Christians. Now we turn our attention to that next paragraph. That next paragraph says concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied. Let's stop right there. All right. Let's one, one, one more time. Uh, you'll probably get tired of me saying this, just like you've got tired of me saying about the, the, the different manners of uh, the, the salvation by faith or salvation or the obedience of faith, rather, in the obedience of works of the book of Romans and some of that comparison drawn back and forth. I don't think you can lose sight of or you should not lose sight of the point of this book one more time. I've writing, I am written to you briefly that you may know that you stand in, that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it, chapter 5, verse 11. That's Peter's point. Stand fast in the true grace. And anytime I read something like that, I have, I have to ask the question, well, if you're clarifying for me that this is the true grace, what's the other option? Because if I'm not standing fast in the true grace, where might I go to? Okay, so Peter is obviously concerned that these individuals might turn away from the true grace to something else. The something else that's available in, you know, A.D. 64, when uh, this book is written, uh, you know, plus or minus a few years, wherever you date it. Uh, what's the other option? Well, the other option is to turn back either to uh, the Judaistic theology that Paul addressed heavily or to turn back to national Judaism. Those are your options. Okay, that's where these elect were going to go. Now, we made that point to say this at the beginning. When Peter says, you are the elect exiles of the dispersion, I believe that's talking, well, obviously that, that is an allusion to a historical reference, um, and also it's at, at least in part a reference to the dispersion of Acts chapter 8. They were scattered abroad, went everywhere, uh, preaching the word. Okay, But the first thing he says to them about it is, this dispersion is done, and you are, you are a part of it, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In other words, it is not. this is not an accident. I believe that is very critical in understanding the, the admonition of the book that follows. What you're experience here, experiencing here in your faith was not an accident. It was not unplanned. It was not unanticipated. And the fact that you're suffering now should not be taken as an indication that your faith is invalid, that your choice is invalid. It's still the true grace of God, all right? And, of course, it comes with the, the identifying uh, presence of the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, indicating that God has made a choice to, to save people and so on along those lines. We've, we talked at length about the sanctification of the Spirit. All right? That, to me, is consistent with this first paragraph, which is, again, hang on. You're being tr- grieved now, various trials. Um, um, uh, 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 you need to rejoice in this time. 
you don't need to turn back. Obviously, you need to continue to obtain the outcome of your faith. And then he turns back to this thought again concerning this salvation. Now, not just salvation, but concerning this salvation. I believe that, that is a significant word there as well. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. All right. This salvation, the thing that you are experiencing, the thing that you need to remain faithful to, the, the thing that is uh, an, an expression of the, um, of, the, of the true grace of God, all of that. This salvation, the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. So the Old Testament prophets prophesied about this. They prophesied about uh, uh, the, the coming of all of this. And again, so don't be surprised. There, there's nothing, nothing's gone wrong here. Uh, we're still on path. We're still walking down the, the plan of God. The, the, the eternal purpose of God is still being fulfilled. But now you need to appreciate, not only is it part of the plan, the prophets who were before you, who prophesied about this time, they prophesied about this grace that was to be yours. When they prophesied about it, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated, indicating when he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and subsequent glories. So the prophets who were prophesying of it wanted to know who on earth or what on earth and when are we talking about? And so they continued to search and inquire carefully, which is an interesting thought, even after they've prophesied of it. Given what resources they had, they continued to try and to figure out the plan and the mind of God. Now, I can give you a good example of that. Well, probably the, the most obvious one is um, over in the book of Daniel. Uh, I think we were in this passage just a couple of days ago for a different reason. But notice as you get, to, obviously Daniel's got several visions in it, several very powerful visions. Obviously we talk about Daniel's two a lot, uh, Daniel seven a lot, um, uh, Daniel nine quite a bit, but, but don't, don't forget chapters eight, 10 and 11 either. Very heavily prophetic, very detailed. I mean, 10 and 11 are some of the most detailed prophecies that you're, you're going to come across anywhere in the Bible. It's, a, it's an amazing section of scripture uh, to study and uh, so we, we skip over it because a lot of it is dealing with material that maybe we're not as familiar with, uh, but it, it's, it's no, nonetheless uh, uh, vital and important. Um, and so lots of prophecy in it, right? You get to Daniel chapter 12. There's one last scene with Daniel. And uh, chapter 12, verse 1, at that time shall arise uh, Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there should be a time of trouble such as has uh, such has such as has been, never has been rather, since the nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name is found written in the book, and many of those who are asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those uh, who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever. And then, he's, and then it is said to Daniel, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, until the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So Daniel's given this great vision about Michael uh, standing up, and 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 uh, uh, a great trouble time, a great a, a, a great time of trouble in that period of time. All, all of these great visions, and, and Daniel is told, "Now wait a minute, Daniel. 
As for you, you just need to shut, shut the book, close the book, and not only close it, but seal it. It's not for you. This book is not about you. It's about, it's about a different time and a different people. So the content of this book is not for you. It, 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 it's not connected to you in any regard whatsoever. You seal it up. Okay. And then Daniel says, now, wait a minute. I looked and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. Uh, he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all things would be finished. And then I heard, he says, verse 8, but I did not understand. And then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And in verse 9, here's, what, here's the answer that he's given. He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Uh, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Okay. Um, and then verse 13, go your way till the end, but you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. In other words, Daniel, verse 9, go your way. This is not about you. This doesn't concern you. This is not for you. It's sealed up. It's shut up until the time of the end. In other words, in other words, Daniel, this is for another people. This is not for your time and for your benefit. It's going to inform somebody later on. And that's just one example. Now, you can find other examples of, 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 uh, of that kind of mentality from the prophets. They were prophesying these things. They were having these visions, and they were like, I, I don't know what this means. I, I don't know what this means. To the point that Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, if you'll start with me in about verse number 6, he says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. He's talking here about this apostolic ministry and the revelation that he's given, although he says it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Right? That hidden wisdom predated the creation. Before the ages began, he de destined this to happen. It was his eternal plan. It was eternal, his eternal purpose. And he, and he said it was inside the mind of God. It was a secret and hidden wisdom. Secret to the point that none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, sometimes people will take that and apply it to heaven. Not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is this secret and hidden wisdom decreed before the ages began. It's that, it's that one, the, the, the eternal plan of God resting in his mind and his mind alone. Nobody ever saw it. Nobody ever heard it. Nobody even ever imagined it. So Peter says over in 1 Peter, the prophets who prophesied of this grace desired to look into it. They desired, they searched diligently to understand it. But they didn't. Never even entered their mind. 
when they were prophesying about, you know, Isaiah was giving the prophecy of Isaiah 53 or Isaiah 35. When, when Daniel is, is giving the prophecy of, of Daniel 7 and the little horn and all of that, when, when, when uh, Ezekiel is giving some of his great prophecies th throughout his book about, about things relating to Israel and things that are messianic in the kingdom. All of those great prophecies. They, they searched, they inquired, they tried to figure out who is this about, what is this about, what time is it about. They didn't know. They never understood the plan of God. Now, it's important to realize that Paul then turns that around in verse 10 because he says up here in verse 6, we do impart wisdom. It's not the wisdom of this age, but rather it is the secret and hidden wisdom of God. It is that wisdom that never the heart of man imagined. And then he says, these things, the things that God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So now they have been revealed. That secret hidden wisdom from before the ages decreed for our glory is now revealed. All right? So go back over here to 1 Peter. Back over here in 1 Peter. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. He predicted the sufferings of the Christ. We just mentioned Isaiah 53. That would be one place. The suffering servant of all, all the second half of Isaiah is, is, is how people sometimes will refer to, to, to him throughout the, you know, Isaiah 40 through about 66. Predicted the sufferings of the Christ. Now, they didn't even understand it. Even the disciples, as late as, you know, at least the midpoint of the ministry of uh, earthly ministry of Jesus. In Mark chapter 8, it is said that Jesus began to teach him that he must suffer many things and that he must be delivered over, over into evil hands and to, be, and to be killed and to rise again the third day. Peter's response to that is, oh, no, Lord. No, no, not on my watch. Of course, then Jesus says to Peter, you know, get, get behind me, Satan. Uh, you're, you're not, you don't desire the things of God. You desire the things of men. So even to that point, they didn't understand it. They couldn't conceive that this is what the Messiah was supposed to go through. Okay. They didn't, they predicted the sufferings, but never, but it never entered the heart of man exactly what God was going to do with all those things. They didn't know how to process it. They didn't know how to think it. Nobody ever conceived of it. The Spirit of Christ predicted that this would come. Not our point today, but if, if, if you want your faith built, if you want, it, you want it strengthened, do a study of the number of prophecies about the Christ that were fulfilled in his life. You know, just, just start, start at his birth, not, not just even mentioning the, the, the virgin birth from Isaiah 7 over to Matthew chapter 1. But when, when the um, wise men come to Herod, and they're looking for the place to go worship the new king. Of course, Herod doesn't, you know, he's not too thrilled with that prospect. But Herod calls his wise men. In fact, let's go over there and take a look at it. Let's go, let's go take a look at it. Over Matthew chapter, um, uh, chapter 2. Um, here come the wise men out of the east, and they ask, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. All right. So they're at the palace which is where you would expect the new king to be born, right? Herod, the king, heard this, and he was troubled. Well, you know, I, I can understand that. 
somebody, there's a new king that's being born, and it's not my son. That's going to be a problem. All Jerusalem was troubled with him. When the king's not happy, nobody's happy. Uh, and assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together. So he, he got the scholars together. He got all the scholars of the Old Testament law in the room. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So, okay, this king, could he be the Christ? Could he be the anointed one? Could he be the Messiah? Where is he supposed to be born? They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then they quote uh, Micah 5, verse 2. You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, Epaphrata, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for, for from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Herod asked the scholars, where was the Christ to be born? They knew the answer. That's the amazing thing. So certain were they about the prophecies that they knew the answer. So when you talk about prophecy, you talk about the Spirit predicted these things, this salvation, the, the Spirit predicted these things, indicating where these things were going to happen, when, where, how, it's there. Hundreds of prophecies about the Christ all through the Old Testament fulfilled in his life. It's one of the most faith-building studies that you can do. And, and, and the people around him knew. It's not as if the, the, the chief priest didn't know that he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. They knew exactly where he was supposed to be born. Okay, because the, the, the prophecies of the Old Testament were so, so specific. Okay, so the, the spirit of Christ in them um, uh, prophesied or predicted of these things. Let me stop and make another point here. Probably not, not the actual point of Peter, but um, I need you to understand something here about the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, was in the prophets. When the Holy Spirit in the Bible, in the Bible, when the Holy Spirit is in a person, that person prophesies on some level. Take it to the bank. Every time you see it, it's a statement of prophetic power. Now, it may be miracles, it may be tongue speaking, it may be something else, but that, that is the case from start to finish. Very first time you'll ever come across a statement about the Spirit of God being in somebody is actually the first time you'll ever see the Spirit of God directly touching and uh, touching a person in any way in any regard. It's found in the life of Joseph, and I believe it's at thirty-eight. After Joseph gives the interpretation of Pharaoh's two dreams, the proposal that Joseph puts forth about how how Egypt can prepare for the impending famine pleases Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? How did Pharaoh know the Spirit of God was in Joseph? It's pretty easy. Joseph did something all of his wise men can't do. He, uh, he um, interpreted the dreams. He had prophetic ability. That's the first time the Spirit of God is in somebody. Okay? Here it is over toward the end of your Bible. And once again, the Spirit of Christ is in somebody. Spirit of Christ is in somebody 
And what are they doing? They are prophets who are prophesying about the grace that has come and predicting the sufferings of Christ even when they don't understand it themselves. The work of the Holy Spirit in the Bible is one of the easiest doctrines there is, okay? It's that simple, all right? You know, down here, um, the good news to you, the, 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 those who preach the good, new, do, good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, okay? Um, how'd that happen? Well, that, that's inspiration. That, that's inspiration, revelation. That, that's how that happened. It's, it's that very, very simple, okay? Um, so there we are. So we have um, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that is to come. They searched and inquired differently, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them predicted uh, of the, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. I like that phrase. Um, remember what we just saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? These things were uh, done before the foundation of the world for our glory. Okay, later in the book of 1 Peter, it's going to be talking about when the chief shepherd shall appear, there shall be glory that comes along with his appearance in 1 Peter chapter 5. All right, so all of that's there. All of that is present. Uh, now, is this, you know, that that is plural here, uh, glories. And um, is it then... Um, what is it describing? Probably the totality of it, because uh, there are glories for the Christ, obviously. He is by the right hand of God exalted, Acts chapter 2, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, at Revelation chapter 3. You sit down in my throne as I'm sat down in, in, in my Father's throne. Uh, so that the, the exaltation of the Christ is absolutely a part of it. When he returned to the, the Ancient of Days, Daniel chapter 7, there was given him greatness and dominion and, and, and the greatness of a kingdom. Uh, uh, or a kingdom dominion, the greatness of a kingdom that was there. But that is then transferred to the saints later in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel 7 and verse 27. There's the glory that is to be revealed in Romans chapter 8 that we spent some time talking about yesterday. And obviously, as we studied Romans together, we spent a great deal of time talking about it. So I would take this probably just to describe the entirety of the, uh, of the eternal purpose of God, uh, the mystery of godliness, uh, that once the Christ suffered, the things that follow would, would be the culmination of the fullness of time, the glorification of both the Christ and then ultimately uh, of his church and of his people. So that I would take that in a general sense. Um, I don't I don't think there's I don't think there's any reason to get more specific than than that uh, from it. Uh, and you know probably it, it's the plural of that word that makes me think it's more general than that than that. If that said the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory or certainly if it's at his subsequent glory, something like that, then I might focus it more directly upon the Christ. But I think this glories here is going to play back to this concept of this salvation that uh, it, it, it's, and so we're taking it more, I think it's in a more holistic example and not to lose the thought once again, what, what I believe Peter is trying to, to reaffirm, to uh, reestablish within the minds of his readers is of the, 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 prominence, uh, the, 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 the legitimacy of the faith that they have taken. And so um, right now, they are going through, if you go back up here earlier in this text, they are going through various trials, right? You have to go through the trials, show that, that your, your, your faith is genuine by surviving the test. So you go through trial, you uh, uh, survive, overcome the trial, 
and your faith will then be found to praise and to glory. So that would be the question. You know, we ask it all the time. If, I, if, if I'm living right, why am I suffering now? I, I, you know, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get my life back on track and it's getting worse, not better, which happens sometimes. Okay, uh, we always have that wonder, you know, why do good things happen to, or, or bad things happen to uh, uh, good people and the other way around is what we have that question. And if you put yourself in the position of these early saints, they've, they've chosen their path. They've, they, you know, if, let's say some of them were there at, at Pentecost. They, they've chosen their path. They, they you know, imagine the joy, the, the excitement that would have been by, by uh, uh, being among that 3,000 and then the 5,000, some of those early days of the church still in Jerusalem. Imagine the excitement that would have surrounded you as a part of that event, right? And then all of a sudden things turn bad. And Saul arises, makes havoc of the church. Persecution arises. James is put to death. Peter is imprisoned. The church is scattered. All of a sudden, things start to turn south. And it continues. Persecution continues to build and to build and to build over the next couple of decades. And at some point, you're going to start to think, you know, I've just done, I've done this wrong. I've done this wrong, especially if I'm right about the setting into which this book is written. Within a couple of years, the Jews that you have been saying, that you've turned your back on, your countrymen, your familymen, look like they've beaten, they've defeated the Romans. If that's the setting, your question is going to be, is my faith valid? Did I make the right choice? And notice, notice the parallel structure here. You are going through trials. You need to survive that trial because after that trial is over, your faith will be praiseworthy, glorious, and honorable. It will be filled with those things when that point of validation comes, when, when, that, when, the, when the sign of the Son of Man appears in heaven. There's coming a day of victory for you. And then he turns right around and he says, now remember, the spirit of Christ who prophesied about this salvation, this salvation which was according to the foreknowledge of God, the, 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 the prophets who prophesied of this salvation, here's what they said. They said the Christ would suffer, go through various trials, and only subsequent to that suffering would the glories follow? Now, keep that in mind as you get over into 1 Peter chapter 4. Because in 1 Peter chapter 4, he's going to come right back to this same, uh, that same concept. Actually, it starts, um, uh, starts in 3, about the uh, suffering for righteousness sake and so on. Um, but when you get over, you know, at the end of 3, the same language that there's, there's the end of 3, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. <laughs> so that same concept of suffering uh, that goes back there, it, 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 it's part of it. And then you have it here uh, in chapter 4, verse 12. You share in the Christ's suffering that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Um, and so on. He left us this example of how to suffer and so on. That's that's the one of the common themes throughout the book of First Peter. And I believe it starts right here in chapter 1. You're going through trial. Your faith is being tested. He went through trial, overcame that testing of his faith, and was glorified, okay, the subsequent glories. And, that when, and you now, if you stay firm, are going to share in that glory when his glory is revealed. That's, that's the end of the book. So I believe it's established here. 
uh, very, very, very powerfully, but also you know, kind of in a subtle manner. It, it's a, I believe that structure is not coincidental. I believe that structure is intentional from the first section, the first paragraph, down into this, this second paragraph here in verses 11 and 10 and following. Okay? And so he then says in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. All right? We just saw that in Daniel chapter 12, right? Daniel's told, go your way. Uh, this is not for you. Seal up the book. It's for the time of the end, and that's going to be sometime down the stream of time. Okay? Seal it up, not about you. So that they were told, no, nope, you're serving other people. This is not going to be for you. In the things that have that ha that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, okay, it has now been announced to you. All right, that's what you go back in First Peter or First um, mm -mm -mm, First Corinthians chapter two. Excuse me, there, First um, Corinthians chapter two. Paul says, "Listen, those things were hidden for the foundation of the world. No mind had ever even imagined the things that God had prepared." Nobody had this plan in mind, uh, that God would unify all things together in Christ in this body known as the church or his kingdom. I had no idea what that meant. I had no clue what the, what Isaiah 65 and 60 cents was, 66 was talking about. They missed it. Right? Even Satan, I think, missed it when he offered Jesus the, the kingdoms of this world. He didn't understand what he was doing. Not really. These things, he says, have now been announced. They have now been announced. All right? That's important. You know, sometimes there, there's this passage back in Deuteronomy. All right? Deuteronomy 29, 29. One of the favorite verses for people in, in the Bible. I think it's one of the most misused verses in all of the Bible. As, as Moses, um, getting through another one of his discourses, before the nation, which is largely what the book of Deuteronomy is, says this at the very end of this chapter. The secret things belong to our Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Okay? The secret things belong to God. The things that are revealed, he says, they belong to us, so that we may do all the words of this law. What his point, his point is, that the revelation that God has given us to this point is sufficient for us to obey God in everything. We have enough revelation to be able to be pleasing to God. All right? What are the secret things? Well, I don't believe, as I've told you in the past, I don't believe there are any orphaned verses in my Bible. I believe verses of say things for a reason. See something like that, I want to enter it. Well, look, 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 lo and behold, look what we have over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Well, there you go. There's the secret thing. We this secret and hidden wisdom has been revealed. And that's what he says. These things have been revealed. What things? The secret things. The secret things have been revealed to us through the Spirit. That's what's been given. They have been given freely to us by God, to the point that Peter will turn and say, he has given unto us all things, 2 Peter chapter 1, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Not just some of the things, all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
from a biblical standpoint, good people understand there are no secret things. There are no secret things. The entirety of the mind of God on the, on the eternal purpose has been revealed. He didn't hold anything back. He told you everything that was in his mind about redemption from before the foundation of the world. The secret and hidden wisdom of God has been revealed. Now, does that mean there, does that mean there's, there are things we, that are not included in the Scripture? I know some of the, the, the questions that sometimes we, we arise, why did Nicodemus come by night and all of those kind of things? I, I, understand, I understand the way we use the passage, but that's not what Moses is talking about. Moses is talking about the unfolding revelation of God. And in, that, in, in, in return to that, there are no secret things. Everything that God has to say on the subject matter relating to the, the eternal purpose, everything has been revealed. It's not as if when you get to heaven and you ask him a question about his eternal purpose, about the plan of salvation, about the mystery of Christ. It's not as if he's going to turn around and, and tell you something you couldn't have known. No, there's nothing more to know. You see, and, and that, that's why. So that's why this. That, that, this is well. Let me get on get on my soapbox even further here for, for a couple of minutes. It's another reason I hate any kind of doctrine that tends toward mysticism. Mysticism, at its very core, says that there is a a, a, a body of knowledge that there are, there are uh, uh, facts and truths that are ascertainable outside of the mind or the reason of humanity. In other words, they are beyond man's, man's native intellect to be able to perceive. You have to perceive them through some kind of infusion, some kind of, some kind of help. Okay? You, you don't learn them, you meditate on them. Okay? And nearly every doctrine, modern doctrine about the teachings of the Holy Spirit has within it some kind of mystical adaptation of the gospel to it. Christianity has always uh, had had people within it who could not deal with the, the reality of just dealing with the biblical text, but they have always tended toward mystic thought. One reason that doctrines like, well, even the doctrines of the Pharisees, where they sat in the seat of Moses and became the arbiter of, of, of truth to the people that followed them. They gave, they gave, they, they stepped aside, if you will, not voluntarily, but they, they stepped aside in the Gnostics rose who had their special enlightened knowledge, all right? And the Gnostics went, went the way of the world. Well, by name they did. Their, their spirit is still here. But they went, by, they went by the way of the world, and all of a sudden the priest and the, and the, the hierarchy and the bureaucracy of the church stepped in and, and became the, the, the holder and the arbiter of truth for other people. Christianity has always had those people who think they have some special insight and something above and beyond. It's not true. None of it is true. All right, there is nothing to know outside of Scripture about salvation. Nothing. Zero, zip, zilts, none. There is nothing to know outside of Scripture about the church. Zip, zero, zip, nothing. No amount of meditation, no amount of praying to the Spirit, no amount of, of, of it, none of that is going to give you one bit more knowledge about the church, about salvation, about any of the things relating to the the. the the, the, the content of Scripture, then what the Word itself will give you, okay? And you don't, by the way, you do not need the Holy Spirit to help you understand it, okay? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 about the mystery, the mystery of godliness, the mystery of Christ. He says, whereby when you read, 
you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. The process by which you understand the apostolic understanding of the mystery is by reading the text. That's it. That's all. Now, you've got to have a good heart. You've got to be spiritually minded, all that kind of stuff. But in terms of the, the ascertaining of truth, it is just that. It is reasoned, it is logical, and it's contained in the words of the text. That's it. That's all. Nothing more, nothing else. Okay? That has not much to do with what I was talking about in First Peter. Other than to say that when you are studying the Bible, please understand, there are no secrets hidden from you. When, when you study the topic of baptism, for example, Topic of baptism, there are, from Acts chapter 2 to the end of the Bible, there are about two dozen passages that specifically mention baptisms. Now, there's several other passages that may allude to it or, or something of that nature, but the actual word baptism in its various forms is found about two dozen times uh, from the book of Acts going forward, so dealing with the church. You could print those out, put them up on your screen or whatever you, whatever you, whatever you have, compile them in a list, and read through them, to read those two dozen verses. I'm, what, what would it take you? Three minutes, five minutes, to read every word in the Bible that directly is attached to the concept of baptism. It wouldn't take long at all. And when you're done, when you're done, you will have understood or you will have access to every point of data, every truth, every fact, that God wanted you to have about baptism. There is nothing else to learn about it. People say, well, I, we just can't understand what happens in baptism. Why on earth not? Why on earth not? Why you can't understand it? You can't understand it because you want to make it mystical. You, you, you can't understand it because you want to have some experience with it. You can't understand it because you, you, it's got to be more. It's got to be more complex. There's got to be some hidden and deeper meaning about baptism and the work of God in baptism. No, there's not. I've given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing mystical. There's nothing more than what the text says. Okay, if you can't understand something about baptism, Two things are true. One, you haven't read all the words of God on baptism. Or two, you're making something up. You're speculating about something the text doesn't address, and so therefore, since the text does not address it, it's not relevant to baptism. Because if it were relevant to baptism, he's given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness, if it pertained to baptism, because that has something to do with our lives and that has something to do with being godly. If it pertained to baptism, he would have told you about it. If you're speculating about something the text doesn't say about baptism, then you're not, you're not talking about baptism. You're, you're making stuff up because it cannot, if it, if it, if, if, if it pertains to baptism, the answer is in the text. If the answer's not in the text, it doesn't pertain to baptism. That's the way that works. Okay, Christianity is simple. When you have read and, and begun to understand all of those verses, all of those verses about baptism, 
then you understand everything God wants you to know about baptism. It's not an infinite set of data. It's a finite set of data, and he said enough to convince you of it, to tell you of it. It's that simple. No more complex than that. Now, that's not the answer of our world. That's certainly not the answer that most religious people want you to have. A lot of preachers don't want you to have. But I don't care how many letters is, are, are behind somebody's name. They don't have access to any more information about baptism than you do. I don't care how spiritual sounding and 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 charismatic somebody you know is. They have no more data than you do. There's nothing. There's nothing more. Okay, it's it's really not harder than that. So uh, what time is it? It's nine fifty. So let's just finish up this section. Um, apparently, but Travis, what are you talking about over there? If time allows, could you answer old helmets cue? What is, I don't see, what is old helmets? Hold on a second. I'm, I'm looking for, I'm looking for something there. What is it, Travis? I don't see, hold on. I'm looking, Travis. I, I, I don't know. Give me something more on that because I can't find, I can't find what you're looking for. Um, uh, okay, let let me just finish this up and then I'll um, I'll I'll, uh, I'll try to deal with that in the last what I got nine minutes left here. Uh, just want to bring up this last point here, and I do need to stop on time today because I have a couple appointments I need to keep. Uh, so we'll try to stop at the uh, just at the top of the hour, if not a minute before that. So anyway, um, preach good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Obviously, John fourteen fifteen sixteen. That's exactly what Jesus said would happen. Uh, and then interesting these things into which angels long to look. So not only did the prophets long to look into them, the angels also long to look into them, to understand them fully. Um, and so um, this whole section, this first salvo, if you will, from Peter, I believe is all tied back and, and introduced very, very poignantly in the introduction. So sometimes you read through these introductions very quickly. I would not suggest doing that in First Peter because we have here, again, according to the foreknowledge of God, and then obviously uh, immediately turns that to the sanctification of the Spirit. Okay, and that's exactly where we end up down here at the end of this first paragraph. Here are the prophets that are prophesying about it, according to the foreknowledge of God. And then, of course, it is connected to the revelation of the Holy Spirit, which produced, obviously, the effects for the sanctification of the Spirit that we talked about a few days ago. The angels longed to look into it. And not even the angels understood fully what God was doing in this time. And that is itself, I think, a very, um, uh, a very poignant and and and, and wonderful thought. Uh, you know, passages like Psalm eight, although I don't know that's necessarily an angel, the voice of an angel there. But you know, what is man that you are mindful of him? Uh, in one of Eric's books that he wrote, he has a great um, uh, a great passage where he goes through that kind of kind of me metaphorical, a little bit poetic for Eric, especially just of. Um, you know, the, 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 the angels of heaven watching God back there in his, in his workshop, if you will, doing all the things that he's doing for this little bitty tiny dot in the middle of the universe there. And they're like, why are you spending so much time? Because they can see all the majesty of what God's created. And they're like, why, why are you spending time with that? They wanted to understand it just as much as the prophets did. And also, very importantly, I think the, the people that are going through these various trials, I think they're beginning to question they're beginning to have their own issues. And Peter says to them here at the end of this introductory section, 
listen, it's been revealed. The prophets wanted to see it. The angels wanted to see it. But this has to do with your, this salvation is about you. It's for you. You are now um, um, the, 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 um, participating in the things that others have served to, to help you bring or to bring about into your life, the prophets and so on that were before. Okay, um, let me see if I can find that. Um, wait, so let me turn that screen share off for a second and bring it back over here. The one thing I don't like about this new stream, streaming platform we're using is that the text on the chat is so small. And when it's on that side of the screen, my eyes have a not the easiest time trying to find it. Um, um, I, I, I'm going to have to get something from you because I can't, I don't, if time allows, could you answer Old Helmet's Q? Who is Old Helmet? Or what is Old Helmet? Got Odell. There's Barry. Hey, Barry. Good to see you. Um, um, scrolling back up. Gwen, Christine, Deborah. Gwen, Christine. Um, I don't see any cue up here. Let me scroll down. Maybe y'all have helped me out here because I, I don't see it. This old helmet. If there is no sadness in heaven, you could not be sad for a loved one if they went to hell. Your empathy is taken from you without your consent, and you are made uh, you are made to be happy about it. That worries me. Um, you know, actually, I we talked about that I think last week. Um, let me go ahead and bring that up on the uh, on the um, on the thing. It was on Thursday. Were we on Thursday last week or was it Wednesday? It was Thursday last week. Um, we actually had a question about that, and my dad spent a decent amount of time uh, addressing that very concept about being about being um, 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 happy in, in 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 heaven and just just in that in that line. So I say that say this because I've got about four minutes here, and I'm not going to have time to give that full answer. It was in the first hour of the program last Thursday, which I think would be episode number, this is 1123. I think it's got to be then about 1119, I think it would be. So I would encourage you to go back and watch that one because we spent about 15 minutes or so, I think, just addressing that. Um, if my, my, um, my, my break here would be is with the major premise here. If there is no sadness in heaven, I don't know that we properly um, apply that concept. The passages that we take that from, Revelation chapter 21, Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66, they don't actually say in most of those instances, there, there's going to be no sadness. It's, it says he's going to wipe the tear from every eye. Well, you can't wipe a tear from an eye if there's no tear there to begin with. So I, I do not think that the concept is going to be in heaven, that we have no empathy for those who have been lost. Okay? I don't think that's the case at all. However, um, the, the comparison of, of where, where we are and, um, and understanding, having a, having a clear understanding of 
who truly are our loved ones, maybe a way of saying it. I, I think our perspective on that's going to be much different. But my, my basic start for answering this question with the time that I've got would be to start there. I don't know that that fundamental um, uh, a thought is valid, that there is the concept that there's absolutely no divergent thought other than pure joy. Kind of like you know, how, how do you know how do you know light without dark? How do you know sunshine without rain? How do you know pure happiness without the ability to feel something else? I don't know that that's going to be the case because you look back at Luke chapter sixteen, the rich man remembers his life, which would to me indicate that Lazarus would remember his life, and Lazarus looks back at his life, and and if he looks back at his life, just as the rich man can look and back at his life, Abraham re, 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 tells him, listen, in your life. Uh, uh, before you were in torment, you, you had luxury and, and, and Lazarus was in want. Um, they both seem to remember that. And my guess is that Lazarus in, in paradise can remember the pain and, and the hurt of his previous life. So I, 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 the, the concept that there is a, that there, there's, there's no, diver, d- d- no diversity of feeling in heaven, I don't know is a biblical one. Now, if I had more time, I would try to also suggest that these passages that we go to, like Isaiah 65 and 66, are not actually talking about heaven. Isaiah 65 and 66, I believe, are talking about the church. Further, I think Revelation chapter 21, where the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, the tabernacle of God is with men, and then if you start reading it, what is actually said about this new Jerusalem, its gates are open, its gates are for the heat or, or, or the, uh, um, uh, the nations come into it. The tree of life that is in the center of it, starting in Revelation chapter 22, the tree of life puts forth uh, uh, leaves and fruit each month. And those leaves, the fruit of that tree is for the healing of the nations. So this is an evangelistic work, open gates, healing the nations. That's not heaven. Heaven is, there's a great gulf fixed, Luke 16, and those who are here can't go here, there, and those who are there can't come here. There's a great gulf fixed. The new Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 22 has its gates are open, and it's healing the nations. See, that's the work of the church. That's evangelism. And it's in that body that it is said there, that God shall wipe the tear out of every eye. So I don't even know that those passages are specifically talking about heaven. I think that I think they're more they're broader than that. So a uh, lot, lot better answer, more detailed answer from my dad last week's program in the first hour. I would really encourage you to go find that if you can, uh, if you're interested in it, but I need to get going here. It is the top of the hour. If somebody will remind me on Monday, because uh, I will forget, if you will remind me on Monday, we can have that conversation again. If you want the first hour, well, I've got some more time to develop uh, some of these concepts, but um, I need to get going. I do have some appointments I need to keep today. Uh, it has been my pleasure. As I said, in the first hour, uh, we had the largest audience that this show has ever had since we started back in September. We had it this morning, and I appreciate that. Appreciate that uh, people are um, uh, going to be um, uh, have been tuning in, and I do appreciate the way that you uh, uh, support the, the programming here at Digital Bible Study and so on. So anyway, have Robbie Eversole on this evening, and looking forward to uh, hearing him once again. And we will see you back here, uh, Lord willing, uh, this evening. Have a good day, everybody.